Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of uh, Professor Jay's Classroom. I'm Professor Jay, broadcasting to you live from the great state of Texas, and it is boiling down here. It's been we've had a heat wave of 100 plus degree temperatures, but we are praying that the forecast is true and that by Wednesday, uh, we will by next Wednesday, we will have temperatures that are tolerable for human uh, beings here in Texas, but that's one of the love-hate relationships that I have with my home state. The weather for the weather here <laughs> in Texas um, and the allergies in Texas are pretty bad, but again, Texas is a great state to live. The people here are amazing, and if for the time being, Texas is one of the few bastions of liberty here in the United States. Uh, we're holding on tooth and nail as much as we can. Um, and hopefully the people who are moving here from failed states like New York and California will understand that, um, that very principle and will cease from uh, voting the way that they did when they lived in their states and turning their states uh, the way uh, those states have gone. Because California is on the verge of utter collapse, so is New York, and um, so again, I hope they leave their policies that destroyed their states back in their states. Uh, it's the same for the, the people who are immigrating to this country. I hope that they leave the policies that destroyed their country or continue to destroy their countries, or the policies that they are seeking to escape uh, by becoming immigrants to this nation and leave them in those countries and embrace um, the policies that have led this country for 230 years and has enabled this nation to be a shining city on a hill. And if you don't believe, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't believe that America is an exceptional country, um, I highly recommend go do some more research. Um, not only research comparative politics and look at uh, even you know, thriving democracies around the world and really take a look at uh, the limitations. The way that you can look at it is really take a look at the limitations on freedom and liberty that those countries have and then look at the limitations of freedom and liberty that we have here in this nation. Uh, I think you will find that America is a much more liberal, uh, much more uh, liberty, libertarian country than many countries around the world. And that's a good thing. That's a real good thing. We want to keep this nation uh, free. We want to keep the people free. However, I think you can look at the overall psyche of a country by how they talk about their country and determine whether or not they think they're free. And I remember growing up as a kid, uh, you, could, you could hear people all the time say, well, do what you want. It's a free country. You don't hear that anymore. Uh, you don't even hear that in the writing um, we used to hear it on television shows and on the news and whatever is, you know, feel, do what you want. It's a free country. You know, it's a free country. Do what you want. Um, we don't hear that anymore. Now it's, you better do what I want you to do, or I'm going to get the mob over here and we're going to silence you. We're going to embarrass you. We're going to shame you on the internet. We're going to shame you. Um, and it's on both sides. Don't get me wrong. Both sides are guilty of this. Uh, trust me, as someone who was involved in the Tea Party movement, I wasn't involved very long in the Tea Party movement. 
And the reason for that is because uh, the Tea Party movement eventually got taken over by the radicals. Uh, the Tea Party movement was very much a grassroots movement, no matter how the media tried to describe it. Um, you know, they were in the tank for Obama, so they were trying to discredit uh, any movement on the right. They tried to discredit any movement on the right, no matter what, as illegitimate or astroturf. And yet we, you know, the Tea Party didn't have people making $100,000 salaries guiding our movement. Okay, it was volunteers from the ground up. It was real. It was true grassroots movement. Unfortunately, those people, the more moderate, the more uh, thoughtful, the more respectful members had to go back to work and the radicals began to start taking over. And um, and not for, so a lot of the moderates got pushed out and I was one of them. I got pushed out. Of, uh, I remember I got pushed out of one group because I didn't believe that 9-11 was an inside job. And that I thought anyone who thought that was crazy. Um, and I still do. Um, just be, I mean, just because one, I was alive when 9-11 happened. Two, I have a basic understanding of construction. I have a basic understanding of how explosions and explosives work. And um, so I, I kind of know what a controlled demolition looks like and what it doesn't. Um, I also know, and I'm smart enough to know, that jet fuel burns at a higher temperature than steel can melt. And one thing is you don't have to melt steel to its molten, to a liquid in order to weaken it to get it to collapse. And if you can get enough to collapse on top of a building, you can get the whole building to collapse. And see, that's the thing a lot of people, you know, they're like, they don't understand is that Osama bin Laden was in construction and not just building homes and building roads, but in large building construction. His family was the, uh, the most successful construction business in Saudi Arabia. So, but again, I'm digressing. You know, I got kicked out of a group for, you know, not believing 9-11 was an inside job, and then I got kicked out of another group because a man was trying to use his money to influence our group and use our group to propel him and use his money to propel him into Republican politics. Um, and so instead of being this grassroots organization, it started being a platform for, another, for, for one man's agenda. Well, when his agenda didn't get achieved, he abandoned the group, and now the group has been relegated to nothing. It still meets, it's still out there, but it's the crazies that meet. Um, it's the more radical elements of uh, the Tea Party. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see the Tea Party uh, fall away. But looking at, um, you know, everything that's going on, um, we have to start, we kind of have to move back, we have to start divorcing ourselves from these things. And um, we got to start moderating our policy. We got to start looking at what's really best for America, what's really best for um, individuals, what's really best to continue it, uh, the freedom in this country. Um, how can we best promote freedom? Um, and sometimes it's going to have to take standing up against a mob um, because we have a lot of people in this country who have gone through an education system that did very little to teach them about virtue and then their parents did very little to teach them about virtue 
Um, I think that's one of the, the gross mishandling of education in our society is the lack of virtue education, values education. Um, but also, too, I think this idea that schools are designed to take care of my kids. Um, if you're a parent and you're listening, please take heed of this, and I want you to take heed of it. Uh, get involved with your, with your child's education, please. As a former educator, um, I can tell you that the students whose parents were involved in their education. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you have to be a PTA member. It doesn't mean that you have to be at the school every five seconds, but to have a standard at home. You will come home. You will do your homework. I will check your homework to make sure it's done. I will help you with your homework if you need help. All of those things, you need to do it. Um, and you don't have to have an incredible education to help and to hold that standard. In fact, Ben Carson is an incredible story of an African-American man who grew up with a mother who was illiterate. And yet she made him read every day. He, he was forced to read books and tell her about the books every day. All right. And now Bill, Ben Carson is one of the world's greatest neurosurgeons. So, and he's an African-American. So again, your position and your place in life does not determine your future. As long as you are determined to pull yourself out of that future and you have the support of a family to help you to set up the, that, what, uh, what Charles Murray calls that pride, that, um, the pride of advancement, you know, those types of things are important because we have to, kids have to have idols. They have to have things that they can pursue. Um, and again, I don't want to say idols, I-D-O-L-S. I want to say I-D-E-A-L-S, ideals. They have to have ideal persons that they look at and go, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to do. If they can do it, I can do it. So again, if you are a parent and you are listening to an you are you are listening to me right now, please, please, please involve yourself. Insert yourself into your kids' education. Um, my first attempt at the podcast, I called it the dinner table podcast because it was supposed to be like sitting around a dinner table and talking about values. Your kids will emulate your values. Yes, they will rebel because that's part of being a kid. It's part of growth. It's part of challenging what they know. But if you build the foundation on truth, and yes, there is such thing as real truth, and you hold your kids accountable to that truth, I promise you, your kids will return to it. Uh, it says so in the Bible. Uh, raise a child in the way that he shall go, and, and when he grows old, he shall return to it. All right? In other words, we go back to what we know, and we go back to what we know as true. And if you are raising your kids with moral relativism, well, whatever, I don't know what's true. You decide for yourself. You're smart. No. You're the parent. You guide them. You mold them. God gave you your child to do that very thing. And so get yourself involved in their education. It is not the job of the state to educate your child. It is your job. The state provides the means by which they can be educated. It is your job to ensure that they are educated. So make sure you do that. All right. Well, I just spent you know the last 12 minutes uh, on uh, some information. But again, I wanted to get that out there. But that was not what I wanted to talk about. That was not today's classroom. Uh, I apologize for the diatribe. Um, I, I try not to do that too much because again, I want us to stay focused on policy. I want us to stay focused 
on uh, these things, but these are cultural things that we've got to take into consideration. Policy is a reflection of culture, all right? And policy can influence culture, and policy should educate culture. That's what we, that's what we need when we need more statesmen out there. We need statesmen who are also concerned about the character and the culture of society. Uh, it goes beyond just, you know, can I provide you with a service or can I fulfill that service to you? It needs to also be how can we continue the character of a nation? And I think that that's what people talk about when they're talking about American exceptionalism is that or American culture. It's not necessarily our culture. Because again, I, again people on the left are in, in, are right. Our culture is a mixed bag of different cultures of different immigration, different immigrate, immigrants, classes, and societies that have come into our nation and have made our nation great, and that's absolutely true. We that's why we call it a melting pot, right? It's a melting pot. We take all these different things from all around the world, we put them into one pot, we melt them together, and that forms the American culture. And so that, w- but if you look at Americans, if you go around the world, one of the things that people who live if you identify yourself, okay, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm an Irish American, okay? I'm 60% Irish, all right? I, and I have a DNA test to prove it, all right? <laughs> so trust me, I'm 60% Irish, all right? If I were to go to Ireland, all right, even though my, my the Irish side of me is only three generations ago from Ireland, okay? My great-grandfather immigrated here from Ireland. If I go back to Ireland... I will not recognize that culture. I'll recognize elements of it because that, those elements have been reflected in my own upbringing, my own culture, but I won't recognize it. And the people in Ireland, I'm not Irish. I'm a Yank. I'm an American. I'm not Irish. And trust me, if you go anywhere else in the world, you may identify with a particular ethnic group, particular culture, but when you go to that nation, they will not see you as part of that. So that, that's another factual, observable um, you know, element that we can look at and go, see, there is a unique American culture. All right, People don't eat hot dogs around the world or frankfurters. They don't put them in buns. That was invented here. Okay. People don't take ground up beef, slap it together, make a hamburger patty, and then put it in between two buns. That's unique here. Even though the hamburger patty and the Frankfurter came from Germany, we're the ones that put it in bread. Well, why did we put it in bread? We put it between two slices of bread because we wanted it to make it easier to eat for the workers, for people going to factories. Okay? That's uniquely American. All right, we took we took the music of the Scotch Irish and we turned it into country western music. All right, bluegrass music. We took the African songs and the African rhythms and turned it into jazz. Those are all unique elements of an American culture. And so that American culture also has with it a character and what is that character? What is the character that we as American citizens need to have? Well, for one, we need a character that respects the individual. 
because we are based on the Judeo-Christian value ethic of that the individual, all human beings are created by God. And because they are created by God, they have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And within that pursuit of happiness, they have the right to private property. That is the American character. And yet if we look at policies today, we look at policies that single-handedly undermine the American character of life, liberty, and private property, which as an element of the pursuit of happiness. Okay, and then why is the pursuit of happiness and why is private property an element of the pursuit of happiness, but not happiness? Well, see, today we define happiness as joy, whatever brings you joy, whatever, you know, pursuing your joy, pursuing your life in order to bring you the most joy. But that is not what the founding fathers meant by pursuit of happiness. That's not what Thomas Jefferson meant. That's not what John Adams meant. That's not what Ben Franklin meant, because those were the men who wrote the Declaration of Independence. What they meant by the pursuit of happiness was Aristotle's pursuit of happiness. And in Aristotle's pursuit of happiness, you cannot achieve happiness until you're on your deathbed. Okay? And so, how do you achieve happiness? Well, you achieve happiness by growing up and maturing. You achieve happiness by serving your community and serving your fellow men. You achieve happiness by having a family and instilling your character and your values into your family and seeing your family grow up. And, be, and, instill, and have those values and become good citizens. You also have accumulation of private property, accumulation of wealth that will help with, with, with pursuit of happiness. All of those things are involved in the pursuit of happiness. And so that is part of the American character. That is the American dream. The pursuit of happiness as defined by Aristotle is the American dream. Not the American dream of the 1950s and 60s, which became a very materialistic uh, dream. You know, the keeping up with the Joneses, the buying the house and the picket fence and driving the right car and, and, and doing all those things, but yet neglecting the home, neglecting the kids. Remember, part of the pursuit of happiness is raising children to become good citizens. That's part of it. And so, again, the rat race was never part of the American dream. And again, all of these things can be found in the Judeo-Christian ethic as well. And so this is the character of the, of the United States. And part of the character of the United States is also looking at the cause of the poor and seeing it as a just cause to help the poor. That is part of... The, the American character is taking care of the poor. It's been part of our character from the very beginning of our, of our inception. I mean, even, even Benjamin Franklin commented constantly on how to care for the poor. And so we have to look at how we care for the poor and how we care for the destitute as part of the American character. Now, unfortunately, what is happening is we're taking this idea, we're devoiding it from the Judeo-Christian character of our nation, and we're now making it part of a secular ideal. And the secular ideal, taken to its logical conclusion, is Marxism and socialism. Using the, power, the course of power of the government to enforce our ideals onto the American people, to make the American people a moral and just society through the course of power of the government. 
that's Marxism. That's socialism. That's not the Judeo-Christian ethic. And the reason why I can say that effectively is because if you look at the Judeo-Christian ethic, if you look at the Judeo-Christian moral value system, one of the biggest parts of the Judeo-Christian moral value system is the character is it still in character and integrity and free will. Free will is a huge part because God created us as free will beings. Because he because the love of a free will being is much sweeter than the love of an automaton. If I create a robot and I, and that robot has to do whatever I tell it to do. And so I program in it to tell me it loves me. Do I love do I believe that that thing loves me? No. Can I de- can I delude myself into believing that what it's saying to me is love? Possibly. But is it is it real? And yet, if I go and I interact with a human another human being who is themselves a human being of free will and we begin to interact with each other and we end up falling in love with each other and it being real love, not erotic love, but real, genuine, agape, unconditional love, and that person tells me they love me, that is much more sweet. Like my children, my daughters, my daughters eventually will become of an age where they will have the choice of whether or not they will continue to love me. Now, I will always love them. I, it's part of my being because they are my child. But they will have the choice of whether or not they want to continue to love me. And if they continue to choose to love me, it makes that love even that much more sweet. It's the same thing with my wife. My wife could one day decide she doesn't love me anymore. or She doesn't love me in that way anymore. And she could divorce me. Or she can continue to give me the love that she has that much more and it's that much more sweet and that's because she's not an automaton she's not a zombie she is an individual created by god with free will and that's part of our character but when we use the coercive power of government to force the american people to act in a certain way or to do a certain thing that is against the very character and the very pursuit and the very pursuit of happiness and the very liberty that we are guaranteed by our creator. And so because of part of our character that we have, we, we care deeply about the cause of the poor. But when we devoid ourselves from God, when we devoid our government from God, We begin to start pursuing policies that lack wisdom. And why does it lack wisdom? It lacks wisdom because the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or the beginning of knowledge. And of wisdom. And of discipline. And see, those three things are what are necessary for a good people and a good government. So the fear of the Lord is important. God is important. A belief in something bigger than yourself outside of the human realm is important because it holds us accountable to truth. And it holds us accountable to how we interact with our fellow human being. And so one of the one of the things that I wanted to talk to today about, and again, it's taken a while to get here, so today's podcast may go a little long, but I wanted to look, there was an article today Uh, in the news, there was a story in the news, and it was talking about the the homeless rates in California and on the West Coast 
are beginning to rise, okay? Uh, they're beginning to soar. Um, the governments blame, of course, their political rivals, which is big business, and the residents blame the governments, and rightly so, all right? And if we look at the stories uh, coming out of San Francisco, coming out of L.A., coming out of uh, San Diego, coming out of Portland, what we see is we have people sleeping out on the streets. We have people who are defecating in the streets, who are urinating in the streets, who are spitting at other people, who are threatening uh, people as they walk by. And you see all of these, you see all of these stories. And like you have the story of Austin Vincent out of, out of San Francisco, who was caught on camera attacking a 26-year-old girl outside of her condo because you know, he's mentally imbalanced. And then the judge, in all of his infinite wisdom, decided he wanted to take it easy on him because he's homeless and because he's poor and because of all these things. And he didn't, he thought it was a, it was an abuse of power to restrict him to, you know, an insane asylum or to the jail or to, to something. Well, guess what? The next day or the following Monday, he attacked another person. And see, we, we understand that people who are homeless, many are falling on hard times, but many of them are mentally ill. Many of them are drug addicted. Many of them are alcoholics and not functioning alcoholics. And so many of them have social problems. And policy in the, federal, in the government, both federal and local and state, ultimately are what contribute to these issues, okay? If you look at San Francisco, one of the things that they saw was that from 2017 to 2018, homelessness jumped 17%, okay? Uh, it's also up, it, it's also up um, 30% in 2019, from 2008 to 2019. So homeless rates are becoming increasingly problematic. Well, why? Well, you could talk about that, you know, things are so expensive in California, it's hard to live there. But then why don't you take your money, save your money and move out of the state or move somewhere where it's cheaper? Why do you have to live in San Francisco? Why can't you live in the mountains? Why can't you live in other places? And, and this is where we, we come into this idea that the, the city wants to blame businesses because they because they're moving into these they're, they're moving into these cities and they're bringing up wages and so therefore it makes everything more expensive blah 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 and yet you never hear well it's because we have a 10 percent tax on everything and we have all these taxes on businesses and we have all these taxes on property and we have an income tax and we have all these things and we keep increasing taxes and and we're and we're and we're taking money out of people's pockets that they would otherwise use to live in these societies also, you have policies in place that tolerate defecation, urination, spitting on people, homeless people living in the streets. These are all policies and, and initiatives that contribute to this issue. Well, we don't want to do anything because these people, we don't want to oppress them. This is oppressing the poor. We don't want to do it. No, it's not. Okay? You can take these people and you can mandate that if they have mental illness, if they have these things, you can mandate that they receive treatment. They can be forced into hospitals. 
they can be forced into residential centers. All right, because guess what? Vagrancy used to be a crime. Okay, you're going to spend the money now or you're going to spend it later. And it's going to be cheaper now than it was than it will be later. And plus, the price that you pay now is public health. The price you pay now is public safety. All right. And so sometimes you've, you've got to set up, you've got to set up boundaries and you're going to say, okay, if you're homeless, all right, you can't be homeless within the city limits. We will move you outside the city limits. And here's the thing, someone who is homeless, who lives out, they can learn to live on the land or they can change things. They can change their mentality. And again, for the people who are mentally ill, then they need to be, they need to have their conservatorship rights taken away and be hospitalized. So again, these, these policies are what are ultimately hurting these cities is because they're, they're, they're trying to be everything to everyone. And again, it kind of takes me back to looking at, um, takes me back to looking at the socialist Democrats or Democrat socialists, uh, you know, convention in July where, I mean, it took them forever just to make an announcement because they were trying to be everything to everyone. And they were trying to control everybody so that everybody would be everything to everyone. And, you know, there, Thomas Sowell said that, um, you know, you have to be careful about being open-minded because you can be so open-minded your brain falls out. And I think that this is what's going on is we're not willing to make the tough decisions. We're not willing to make the decisions because again, we are, we are afraid of what the mob will do. Well, and again, the mob is a direct reflection of the statesmanship and the leaders and the leaders are a direct reflection of the people. And if we're not appropriately educating the people, and if the people are not appropriately educated, and if that character that we were talking about is not continued in our education system and in, in our homes, then this is what you get. And that's one of the reasons why I say, you know, California is in ruination right now. It is a beautiful and wonderful state. It's one of my favorite places to go. I have family that live there. But California is in ruination. It is ruining itself right now. It is making it to the point where it will collapse. And when it collapses, it will be dangerous. But here's the thing. Nobody, this is, this is what's so dangerous about California. Nobody's learning the lessons from California. Nobody's learning the lessons from New York. Nobody's learning these lessons of Detroit. I mean, if you want to see what happens when you try to be everything to everyone and you look to the government for solutions, just look at Detroit. Detroit destroyed itself under these policies. And every, every single government that elects to implement these policies that are socialistic and are everything to everyone and don't hold to a, a, a standard and a character and a value system, this is what happens. And people ultimately fail. So again, uh, San Francisco is, I feel sorry for the people who are living there. And and who, you know, who I feel the most sorry for is I feel the most sorry for the homeless that live there. They don't deserve that. They don't deserve what's happening. 
And here's the thing. If they're not crazy, they're, they're acting on behalf of an addiction or they're legitimately homeless because they can't afford to live there. Well, those people who can think clearly don't stay homeless very long. Okay? Because they will figure out a way. Those people who are rational will figure out a way to get out of homelessness. So again, um, it really bothers me. The next thing that I wanted to talk about is this idea of hate speech. Uh, We talked about hate crimes legislation before, but I wanted to talk more directly about hate speech. Because again, crime is... um, something that we can all agree that we need to combat. Um, You can um, implement policies to actually go after crime. Um, You can define what a crime is. Uh, We have some very good uh, definitions of crime codified in our laws. And now we can argue about the philosophical aspect of adding the word hate to it and then putting more severe um, penalties attached to these crimes when they're done in the name of hate, um, quote unquote. But I would tell you that, I I mean, if you really look at the underlying motivations of all crime, it's all hate. All right. Murder, you have to have hate in your heart to murder someone. You have to have hate in your heart to rob someone. You have to have hate in your heart to rape someone. All violent crime is hate crime. Okay? All violent crimes are hate crimes. And all nonviolent crimes are hate crimes. You genuinely have to hate another person. Either you hate that person specifically, or you hate the fact that they have more than what you have. Okay? But ultimately, the underlying issue there is hate. And so all crimes are hate crimes. So what are we doing when we say when we're talking about hate, when we add hate to something. Well, what we're talking about is we're, we're trying to remove racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, bigotry. We're trying to eliminate that. We're trying to make people better people through legislation. And it's interesting because now we're taking it from crimes, which actually do genuine, real harm to people. And we're moving it to something a little more nebulous, which is speech. Now, when I was growing up as a kid, you know, we were, we were taught the old rhyme, you know, sticks and stones break my bones, but words may never hurt me. We were taught to ignore people. We were taught to, um, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. We were told to hold our tongues. We were taught these little sage pieces of cookie, you know, fortune cookie wisdom. But it was good stuff. It were, they were fables. They were morals. They were the, these things that we were taught. We were taught to be tough. We were taught to, you know, know who we were because... You know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words may never hurt me. If words can't hurt me, it means I know who I am. I, 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 I don't have to listen to what you're saying. But we didn't take those, those morals and try to codify them until now. Well, why? 
Well, one, again, you could go to the argument that a godless people need more laws. Okay? And I think that's true. Because if there is an eternal lawgiver, he expects us to follow certain laws and certain codes of conduct, which we call morals and values. And if we follow those, it's because we want to serve him and we, even if we're concerned about his judgment, and that's why we follow those, we're still acting better towards our fellow man than if you take that eternal lawgiver away, then what holds us accountable? Well, my own personal, well, yeah, but you're, you know, you're not, a, even though you think you're a good person, you're really not a good person. Have you ever lied? Yeah. Well, what can, are you going to lie again? Probably. Okay. Well, then guess what? You're not a good person. Have you ever st- stolen anything well yeah are you gonna steal something again well i don't know maybe we'll see you're not a good person all right now you may not want to steal something but you're gonna because it serves your best interest you will act in whatever way serves your personal selfish best interest and so therefore guess what you're gonna lie you're gonna steal you're gonna cheat um you could murder you could kill you could you could do things but you're gonna act unethically Because again, now, do people who claim to know God act unethically? Absolutely. And again, that's why. But yet, if you look at overwhelming studies, people who believe in a God or a higher power outside the human realm, what you find is overwhelmingly they act more ethically. Time and time again, more ethically. And if a democratic society is a direct reflection of its people then a secular society should be something we fear. It really should be. Because again, if you look at all of the truly secular societies around the world, one of the things you will find is they tend to be the greatest violators of human rights. China, Soviet Russia. Okay. Those were were purely secular societies. Okay. Now you could be making the argument, well, that's because, well, the founding fathers intended this society to be secular. No, they didn't. Show me. The only author that you'll probably find to write about that is probably Thomas Paine. But even Thomas Paine said that you can't dispense with Christian religion. He just didn't like the way that it was run. So again, you're not going to find an example. Well, what about separation of church and state? Well, separation of church and state is, if you read the letter that was written to the Danbury, Connecticut Baptists, it was about government not telling religion what they were to do. But freedom of religion is in the First Amendment. Yeah, freedom of religion. That means the government can't tell you how to practice your religion in the public arena. You see what I'm saying? We've, misapp- we've misapplied the Founding Fathers. Thomas Jefferson was not anti-religion. Thomas Jefferson, if anything, was not, if I would say, a deist at worst. Especially if you, if you study him. So let's go back to this topic of hate speech. Well, what is the definition of hate speech? Well, you have uh, this definition from uh, Google Dictionary, which is hate speech is abusive or threatening speech or writing, speech or writing that expresses prejudice against a particular group, especially on the basis of race, religion, or sexual orientation. 
Okay, so in other words, expresses prejudice. And prejudice, if we could go back, is unfounded judgment, okay, against a particular group. Don't we do that on a daily basis? Don't you do that against any group that you disagree with? Don't you write? No. So again, so again, we have, um, so it has to be abusive or threatening speech. Well, those are really nebulous terms. What do you consider to be abusive? Who gets to determine what's abusive? Who gets to determine what is threatening speech? Okay. If just speaking out negatively against an organization or against a people based on their race, religion, or sexual orientation, wouldn't that, wouldn't that cover a lot of speech? Okay. Wouldn't that cover a lot that you couldn't say? And again, it seems to me that the people who tend to be pushing hate speech tend to be on the political left. And the, the speech that they tend to be calling hate speech is speech that they disagree with. So who's the arbiter? Who tells us what abusive and threatening speech is? All right, if we look at where hate speech laws have actually been implemented, like in Canada and the UK, it's used to silence people on the political right or religious people. All right, we have a gentleman in the United Kingdom who reported on a bunch of Muslims raping a bunch of women, and now he's being put in prison for uh, hate speech because he had the audacity to write against Muslims. Okay, then uh, you have several people all over the state of Canada who are thrown into prison for speaking out against homosexuality and using what the Bible says, their faith says, is a sin and calling it a sin. Damnable to hell. Well, there are a lot of sins that are damnable to hell. Why is homosexuality so special? And see, that's the thing is hate speech is anything that is considered offensive not or that's where that term abusive comes in well what's abusive well that's offensive speech well offensive speech is protected by the constitution at least we were told that when it came to pornography that's protected free speech okay you know shock jocks on the radio protected free speech vulgarity on television protected free speech but yet, if you go out and you want to say, hey, guess what? You know, a man and a man living together is sin. A woman and a woman living together is sin. That is hate speech. Now, again, I mean, you can make the argument, okay, well, saying, you know, uh, people of a certain race are inferior or a problem is abusive and that's offensive. Okay. Well, again, we could look at, you know, the KKK and all these different organizations. But what if we look at Don Lemon of CNN saying the biggest terror threat in this country is white men? Is that not a racist comment lumping all white men as terrorists in this country? Or what about um, what about Angela Rye on CNN? Saying, 
saying that white men who think like Republicans or conservatives are the greatest terrorist threat in the United States. Not only did she hit white men, but she hit she hit Republicans. Her political is that not hate speech? Is speech like that not hate speech? Or what about Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and the horrible things that they say about Jews in Israel? Is that not hate speech? Are they, and yet they're protected? What about people who ridicule the Christian faith? People like Taylor Lorenz. They said Jesus literally faked his own death for more followers though. So. Or CNN attacking the 16-year-old Catholic schoolboys because they were wearing MAGA hats and a Native American got in their face playing a drum. You see what I'm saying? There's a lot of hate speech out there if we take that definition of hate speech from the left. And I would challenge any of these people to show me Real, genuine hate speech coming out of Christians. Is it really hate speech to tell someone that their lifestyle is sinful? And that the cure to their lifestyle is Jesus Christ? And that Jesus Christ died on the cross because he loved them so much he didn't want to see them go to hell? Is that really hateful? I mean, Penn Jillette once said that, you know, he once equated not telling people about Jesus as hate. Because he said, if you believe that hell is a real place and you believe that my sin is sending me to hell, what he said was, how could you hate me so much not to keep, try to keep me from going there? That was Pendulette, an, an avowed atheist, who said that. And if we look at freedom of speech, okay, one area in which, and this is the this is the you know yelling bomb or yelling fire, it's uh, Schenck v. United States in 1919. The they ruled that freedom of speech can be limited during wartime. Okay, so national security supersedes things. It would create a clear and present danger that they will bring about a substantive. The substantive evils that Congress has right to prevent. So, if you're out there speaking out subversively against the government, yeah, they can silence you. But this is also applied to, you know, you can't yell bomb in a crowded theater. That's going to hurt people. All right. However, the First Amendment, and they also said in Abrams v. United States, First Amendment did not protect printing leaflets, urging to resist the war effort, calling for general strike, advocating for violent revolution. Okay. So again, advocating for, you know, violence. The First Amendment does not protect anti-war speech designed to obstructing recruiting. All right. Supreme Court applied protection of free speech to the states through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. All right. In Plinsky v. New Hampshire, First Amendment did not protect fighting words which, by being said, cause injury or cause an 
immediate breach of the peace. Okay. But then again, aren't people then responsible for controlling their own language? All right, West Virginia B. Barnett, West Virginia Board Policy Requiring Students and Teachers to Recite the Pledge of Allegiance was unconstitutional. That was later reversed. Okay, United States v. O'Brien, First Amendment did not protect burning draft cards. Tinker v. Des Moines um, protects students' pure speech and symbolic speech in the First Amendment. However, schools do have the right to limit certain freedoms if they believe that it's disruptive to the school day. Supreme Court held in Brandenburg v. Ohio that First and Fourteenth Amendment protected speech advocating violence at a Ku Klux Klan rally because the speech did not call for imminent lawless action. Cohen v. California, California statute prohibiting the display of offensive messages violated freedom of expression. All right, that was a pornography case. Miller v. California, this case set forth the obscenity precautions. Okay. Island Tree School District v. Pico. Officials could not remove books from school libraries because they disagreed with the content. So again, issue by issue by issue. Okay. Um, the Supreme Court upholds freedom of speech. So I find it that any kind of hate speech law that would ever be passed would be knocked down by the Supreme Court. Okay. And, and we saw that in places like... Uh, San Antonio, who tried to say that city contracts couldn't be uh, given to people who associated with hate groups and they included churches as part of that. Um, that got knocked down real quick. Um, again, you know, San, San Antonio continues to get in trouble because they keep trying to ban Christian organizations. Um, like they're in trouble right now because of Chick-fil-A in their, in their airport and all that good stuff. But again, looking at hate speech, we have to look at this as who will be the arbiter. And if we create an organization that is ultimately the arbiter of hate speech, that gets to determine and make the rulings based on what hate speech is, then are we not ourselves moving closer and closer to what Orwell wrote about in his book 1984? I think we are. I think there's a lot of people out there who have never read 1984. And if they have read 1984, um, they totally miss the point. It's not an instruction manual, okay? Um, it was Orwell, you know, doing, doing his best to predict a totalitarian future based on what he was seeing in the world. Well, that totalitarian future is starting to come true. I highly recommend that you read 1984 because I think we are beginning to see the rise of Newspeak in our society. And I think it's hiding under the guises of trying to prevent hate. Well, anyways, that's today's classroom. I'm sorry for going long. Um, and it's 51 minutes. Um, but I hope it was informative more than anything. Um, and I hope that my followers, I've, it seems to me that I have three which is great. Um, come back. All right. Well, uh, until next time, have a good day.